0: In our basement when i was growing up we had all of these bookshelves i must have walked by them hundreds of times before i decided to take a look and see what was inside them what i found were unexpected titles books about archaeology books about space travel and ufos these fell well within my area of interest and i was riveted i scooped up as many as i could and took them to my room and started reading them at first it didn't occur to me where did these books come from but then Slowly but surely it dawned on me. These books belonged to my parents. These were things my parents had been interested in. Suddenly, a lot of things began to make sense. Like, why we watched the TV show in search of. It would sit along other family friendly programming in our household as something that the entire family would gather around the TV and watch. No adult ever commented on it, but there it was. Week after week. Something we'd watch. The music would come up, and then this documentary-style format would be presented by Spock from Star Trek, and I couldn't look away. A couple of years ago, I was listening to a co-worker who said that they had decided to get rid of all of their books. They no longer read books on paper. They had moved completely to tablets or e-readers, and they were joking that they didn't know what to do with all these bookshelves that they had. Part of me was sad to hear it because... I like to hold a book, but an even bigger part of me was sad because I find household libraries so interesting. They give insight where none exists, and generationally, they can teach you something about the other people in your household. I never asked my parents why they were into ancient aliens and theories about alien abductions and Bigfoot. The older I get, the more I realize that I already know the answer. Because those things are really fun. And much like me, they found it fired the imagination. On today's show, I'd like to talk to you about a TV show that was supported by multiple generations in my household growing up in search of. We'll talk about the origins of the show. We'll talk about the people who were behind the camera. We'll talk a little bit about the music, the revivals, its availability on home video. Metagirl's back with a top five list. And we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Lost civilizations, extraterrestrials, myths and monsters, missing persons, magic and witchcraft, unexplained phenomenon. In Search Of cameras are traveling the world seeking out these great mysteries. This program was the result of the work of scientists, researchers, and a group of highly skilled technicians. In Search Of was a television show that ran Weekly from 1977 to 1982 it focused on unexplainable or mysterious Phenomenon in a documentary format it got its start based on three one-hour Documentaries, but those documentaries would not have existed without a book that book is chariots of the gods by Eric von Daniken Eric von Daniken who was born in 1935 is a Swiss author who has written multiple books that make claims that extraterrestrials influenced early human culture. This would lead to a best-selling book, and I'm not just talking mildly best-selling. This thing has sold millions of copies, chariots of the gods, which was published in 1968. A copy of that book was on the shelves in my family's basement. Now I am not a expert on von Daniken or his beliefs. But the basic idea of Chariots of the Gods is that ancient astronauts or extraterrestrials from other planets who are acting as astronauts visited Earth and had an influence on early humans. And von Daniken points to what he saw as evidence in early construction or descriptions in books or in illustrations in temples. It was very controversial at the time. Its belief continues to be controversial. I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions about Chariots of the Gods, but I will read a quote from Carl Sagan, who said about Chariots of the Gods, that writing as careless as von Däniken's, whose principal thesis is that our ancestors were dummies, Should be so popular is a sober commentary on the credulousness and despair of our times. I also hope for the continuing popularity of books like Chariots of the Gods in high school and college logic courses as object lessons in sloppy thinking. I know of no recent books so riddled with logical and factual errors as the works of von Daniken. That is a cutting commentary. No matter what you feel about Chariots of the Gods, it resonated with people. And a lot of people have speculated as to why that is why in the 60s and 70s, books and TV shows and theories about aliens became so popular. Some speculated about the massive upheaval and changes of the 60s, and people's loss of belief in traditional organizations spurred them to try to find new ways or to try to pull their old beliefs into the realm of science in a way that satisfied their more modern way of thinking. Whatever the reasons, these theories exploded in popularity. And while Chariots of the Gods would be one of the best-selling books around the subject, there would be follow-ups and lots of copycats. Von Daniken's book was so popular that it came to the attention of Alan Landsberg, Alan Landsberg was a television writer, producer, and director. Now, I've read interviews with Alan Landsberg, and he does appear to have been a believer in Von Daniken's work. When producing the documentary films that would become the precursor to In Search of, Alan Landsberg was interviewed in various newspapers and on television. And during those interviews, he did talk about becoming a believer in the subject. I'm not sure if he changed later in life. I did try to find interviews with him that went on later, but most of the interviews around him are centered around this time, and he would go on to write books about the subject that we'll talk about a little bit later. When discussing early culture, say, Landsberg talked about human skulls, thousands of years old, which bear the scars of precise, sophisticated brain surgery, knotted ropes called quipa, on which the Inca were capable of making complex calculations. Go ahead. Try to explain them. It appears that the very thing that Sagan says in the quote I read earlier applies here. His belief was that earlier humans must have been much dumber than we give them credit for, and therefore that knowledge that they had, their ability to do these things that we think of as modern, must have been given to them by somebody more modern, or maybe even futuristic, or aliens. But Landsberg does have a caveat he says, the show is entertainment. I'm not out to convert anyone to my way of thinking. On the other hand, and at this point, he pulled out a small Colombian figure that looked sort of like an astronaut that had been carved in gold more than 2000 years ago. And he said, if you have a better explanation for this bit of statuary, I'd be delighted to hear it. What I like about these interviews is that the way that's presented is very much the core of In Search Of. It doesn't give you an absolute fact. Instead, it gives you speculation wrapped in what could be a fact and then says to you, can you think of a better way to explain this? And of course, if you don't have all of the other information, you're not sure how to explain it and it gets the imagination going. And that's what makes it so much fun. Landsberg founded his production company in 1971, and it would go on to produce things like In Search Of and That's Incredible, which are early examples of things that would become reality TV staples even now. That's Incredible features stories about real people in a sort of pseudo-documentary format, mostly documentary played for entertainment, and In Search Of was about science, but cloaked in pop culture. And we see that sort of playing out on channels like the History Channel and the Discovery Channel almost every day now. This wasn't the only thing that Landsberg produced, though. They had success in made-for-TV movies with the Andy Rooney film Bill and produced TV shows like Kate and Allie and Give Me a Break. On the big screen, their most well-known release was the 1983 Jaws sequel, Jaws 3D. In 1978, Landsberg was acquired by Reeves Communication, and Landsberg would leave the company in 84. In 1990, this company was purchased by Thames Television for $89 million. Eventually, the rights to the company's library of productions would come to be owned by Fremantle, which is a production company that is doing quite well right now. Landsberg got his start as a documentary filmmaker. After gaining experience at the Army Radio Network, his film Kennedy, The First Thousand Days was extremely well-received at the 1964 Democratic National Convention, and he is considered one of the early television documentary pioneers, working with organizations like the National Geographic Society and individuals like Jacques Cousteau. All of this experience would make In Search of, while simple, also a well-polished package. This wasn't an amateur throwing together shots. This was a professional who was potentially a believer in the subject, and the end result was just a joy to watch. The works of von Daniken would lead Landsberg to produce one-hour TV documentaries. The first one was in 1973, and it was called In Search of Ancient Astronauts, which is based specifically on Chariots of the Gods. The next one is In Search of Ancient Mysteries, And then the next two came out in 1975, In Search of Ancient Mysteries and The Outer Space Connection. These subjects and episodes of In Search of would later be turned into books by Landsberg. Some of them pretty good-selling books. In total, from 1974 to 1979, he would release 13 books. Starting with In Search of Ancient Mysteries in 1974 and ending with Death Encounters in 1979. So the original documentary films, while longer, were very much in the same vein as episodes of In Search Of, but there was one very key difference, and that was the narrator. And the narrator of the three original films was none other than Rod Serling of Twilight Zone fame. He would be the initial choice to host the spin off TV series, but before production would start, Serling passed away. Rodman Edward Serling was born in 1924. He passed away in 1975. He was a gifted and award winning playwright, producer, screenwriter, narrator, definitely best known for his work on the TV show The Twilight Zone, and before that, His live television dramas of the 1950s, but he also created shows like Night Gallery and was extremely influential on generations of writers who would come to follow him, many trying to follow in his footsteps. Eventually, they would find someone to host and narrate the TV show in search of, but when they produced the pilot, they actually had gotten actor Robert Vaughn involved. Fortunately, Vaughn, while talented, opted to not. Do the entire series, but it's a big what if. Vaughn was a stage, television, and film actor, well known for his TV show The Man from Uncle, where he played Napoleon Solo. If you're an 80s TV fan, he also appeared in the fifth season of the TV show The A Team. With Serling's unfortunate passing and Vaughn declining to host the series, Leonard Simon Nimoy stepped to the plate and knocked it out of the park. Leonard Simon Nimoy, who I've done an episode about, should check that out, is by far best known for playing Spock on many versions of the Star Trek franchise. It's a character he portrayed in film and television for almost 50 years, from the pilot in the 60s to a final film performance in 2013. He would also go on to direct, write, and he was a very talented poet and photographer. To say that the character of Spock is well-loved is an understatement, and that same thinking might also be applied to Mr. Nimoy, who is well-remembered and celebrated. And so, In Search Of was very lucky to get him as the narrator and host of the show. He brought stardom in the way that a show like this would want to attract stardom. People who were fans of Nimoy were pretty excited to see him week after week. But he also brought an authenticity in his delivery and seriousness about the subject. There's a great article in 1976 that discusses In Search Of and talks about Nimoy's sort of open mind around the subject, or at least his savviness about presenting the TV show. When asked about how skeptical people should be about the subject matter in the show, Nimoy says, We're taught to believe that if it doesn't register with our five senses, smell, touch, etc., it doesn't exist. Not true. When a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around, does it make a sound? Think about it. What I'm trying to say is there are possibilities of perceiving things in new ways. Our methods of perception are very limited. He would go on to present the show throughout its entire run. It's truly one of the joys of watching it is his presentation. Nimoy would actually write an episode of In Search Of, the episode about Vincent Van Gogh. He found the subject very intriguing and had played the role of the artist's brother, Theo, in a one-man show earlier. His research was thorough enough that he actually came up with new theories around what had plagued Van Gogh. Many people thought it was insanity, and Nimoy discusses the possibility that it was epilepsy. I've talked a lot about the people behind the show and discussed a little bit about what the show is about. But if I haven't stated it clearly enough, this show is about weird things. UFOs, Bigfoot, the Bermuda Triangle, ghosts, things that didn't have proof for existence. And the show's objective was, according to Nimoy, to present the most complete information available and leave the audience to draw its own conclusion About some of the world's wonders In the promotion of the show at the time There's lots of language around this Not saying, hey, the things we're presenting are facts But instead saying, we're just going to give you a lot of information And you're going to fill in the rest It was an idea that was way ahead of its time And as I mentioned, it is something that we see On a lot of modern documentary-style entertainment In Search Of is filled with many great episodes, but which ones are the best? Here with the top 5 episodes of In Search Of is Metagirl. 5, 4,
1: 3, 2, 1 Greetings retro fans, this is Metagirl bringing you the top 5 episodes from the original run of the sci-fi TV series, In Search Of. At number 5 is season 4, episode 1, Tidal Waves. Hold on to your boogie board because the big one is coming. This episode is overflowing with facts about tidal waves, including how they're caused and the early warning systems of the late 1970s. It's edited like a horror film, awash with cuts between idyllic beach scenes and terrible waves, screams, and tense music. The suspense swells as Nimoy asks us when the next tsunami will strike as if a tidal surge were a serial killer on the loose. He warns that once born, a tsunami cannot be stopped or controlled. Yikes! Oh, and look out, L.A. According to this episode, the next attack might be rushing towards you. Number four is season one, episode 21, UFOs. Unidentified flying objects, or UFOs, are core curricula for In Search Of. In this episode, we learn of various sightings, including Kenneth Arnold's famous 1947 observation, from which the term flying saucer originates, as well as shiny saucer sightings over Mellon, Wisconsin, and Big Chimney, West Virginia. The real mystery is why UFOs gravitate towards small towns with awesome names. You'd better watch out, Ketchup Town, South Carolina! Number 3 is Season 3, Episode 10, Bermuda Triangle Pirates. Many boats have mysteriously vanished in the notoriously treacherous Bermuda Triangle. These disappearances are attributed to assorted spooky legends, which we hear all about in this episode, including the fact that none have ever been proven. One more earthly theory explored is that missing vessels were hijacked by plundering buccaneers. Yes, it's possible that pirates commandeer at gunpoint seductive sailboats and yummy yachts and then disguise the vessels to escape detection. They later resell the stolen craft to the only buyers keen for such illicit merch, drug runners. Spooks or crooks, either way, beware the triangle, my seafaring friends. At number two is season three, episode 16, The Money Pit Mystery. Long before the History Channel's The Curse of Oak Island reality show, there was In Search Of, covering the mysterious pit of lost treasure that has intrigued searchers for hundreds of years. We unearth the history of Oak Island, Nova Scotia, believed to be haunted, dangerous, and full of, as Nimoy puts it, fantastic wealth, buried in a pit. Various elaborate excavation efforts are explored via colorful reenactments and interviews. And the number 1 episode of In Search Of is Season 5, Episode 1, UFO Cover-Ups. This episode is packed with alluring hearsay and supposition about enigmatic Skycraft. From the saucer crash in Roswell, to Project Blue Book, the Air Force's investigation into UFO phenomenon, from heavily redacted government documents to conspiratorial military cover-ups, from frozen ETs stashed in top-secret military installations, to the engineering of saucer-shaped flying machines here on Earth, this episode showcases the best that the program has to offer. Pure fun. And there you have it, the Retroist's top five episodes from the original In Search Of. Until next time, list fans, this has been Metagirl.
0: Thanks, Metagirl. One of the great things about In Search Of. Is the music. And that music was composed by frequent collaborators Lauren M. Rinder and W. Michael Lewis. If you're a fan of the show, you're very lucky. A soundtrack album was released on AVI Records in 1977. It's not a full soundtrack with all of the music from the TV show, but it has nine songs, which includes a 5 minute and 18 second long version of the theme song. It's very interesting music when not in the background has a very driving beat and takes advantage of electronics and leans into Lewis and Rinder's experience as pioneers in the L.A. disco scene. When it comes down to it, this music is very disco-y. When you listen to it on its own, you could dance to this music. That might not be apparent when you're just listening to the music during the TV show because it's kind of creepy, kind of scary. But then when you play it on its own, you think, okay, let's get out on the dance floor. Lewis and Rinder would work together on many projects and be credited as composer on a few movies. Maybe the ones that people have seen are Revenge of the Ninja and King Solomon's Minds. After discovering them, I found that they had done a concept album on the Seven Deadly Sins, which is this electronic disco concept album, and I have listened to it multiple times since discovering it. It's completely posted on YouTube. I suggest you check it out. It's a lot of fun. The In Search of Album, you can find it posted online in places. You can also find it on CD. It can be sort of expensive, but from time to time, someone will post it at a reasonable price. I've seen it for reasonable prices like $16 and as high as $60. So be warned before buying. It's got a really great cover. I'll post a link to that in the show notes. But it has the crystal skull, which is a favorite subject of shows like In Search of, and has these concentric circles radiating out from the skull. The show was released on April 17th, 1977, and would run till March 1st, 1982. And the show was a half-hour format, so each episode about 23 minutes long. During this original run, it would have 144 episodes. The show was syndicated, meaning it wasn't produced specifically for a channel. In my area, I believe it was shown on WNBC, which was the NBC affiliate in our area. Now, I said it had 144 episodes during its original run. That is because there were two revivals of the show. In 2002, Mitch Pelegi, who played Skinner on the TV show The X-Files, was brought in to host and narrate a reboot of In Search Of. That didn't last very long. In 2018, the History Channel started a revival, and they dug into the Spock well and pulled Zachary Quinto, who played Spock in the rebooted Abramsverse versions of Star Trek Films that ran in 2018 and 2019 and is still open ended. So, I'm going to guess we'll see more episodes of the Zachary Quinto version of In Search of in the Future. It does very much seem to be in the wheelhouse of today's History Channel. And I've watched all three versions. All of them are fun to watch, all of them have something different to offer. It's hard to compare the three because they're very different in a lot of ways. I like the older version. Mostly because I like the styling and I find the production values very interesting, and I think Nimoy does an amazing job hosting it. For a long time, it was very difficult to watch high quality versions of In Search of. It had played in syndication, and so you could watch it in places from time to time, but they were also highly edited versions of the show. Often they lopped off sections so that they could speed things along and insert more commercials. Eventually, a DVD of all 144 episodes hosted by Leonard Nimoy was released on DVD. It also included two of the Rod Serling specials, In Search of Ancient Astronauts and In Search of Ancient Mysteries. Unfortunately, the three Landsberg specials, The Outer Space Connection, Secrets of the Bermuda Triangle, and Man Beast, Myth or Monster, aren't included. Those are on YouTube if you want to watch them. This version also included all eight episodes of the Mitch Pelegi version of the show. So if you're curious, you get to watch that as well. In Search of was a very interesting show and much more influential than you might realize upon first watching it. You really. Need to watch it and then put on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel. And you can just see how much they borrowed from the work of Landsberg. He was an absolute pioneer in this type of entertainment. Your taste in television shows may vary, your interests may vary, but I think if you give in search of a chance, you might like it. You might even be interested in the subjects in it enough to buy a couple of books. Maybe if you do, you put them on a bookshelf. Then as you grow up, you decide, well, I don't need to see these books all the time. You move that bookshelf out of the way. I'm going to guarantee if you do, eventually one of your kids is going to find it. And you can make those kids think you are so much more interesting than you ever were. And that's really what it's all about. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at Retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Twitter.com Retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you should follow Peachy on Twitter at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word pixel, and the number 8. Just look for the Welsh flag. Thanks to Metagirl for another great top 5 list. If you like what you hear, you should follow Metagirl on Twitter which is at M-E-T-A-G-R-R-L, Meta Girl. Thanks to everyone who has been supporting the show over at Patreon. Over at Patreon, you can vote on supporter-only episodes and get bonus tracks and outtakes from the show, as well as some bonus memory episodes that I've started posting there. You can find the Retroist Patreon at patreon.com Retroist, or you can find a link at the top of the site. I'd like to thank new supporters of the show, Mike Sterling, Michael Bauscher, Neil Weinstein, Scott Cadwell, and Michael Palmerlo. I hope I got all of your names right. If I didn't, just let me know, and I'll be happy to correct it in the next episode. If you'd like to hear your own name here, just stop by the Patreon. Thanks again to everybody who's supporting the show. And everybody who's listening, if you can't support the show via Patreon, please just go to wherever you listen to the show and give it a good review. It really helps new people find the show. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. The retroist microphones are traveling the world, syncing out... Old
1: stuff. Forget it. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.